You are listening to Concrete Conversations, an informative podcast brought to you by the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. We represent the concrete masonry and segmental paving manufacturers in Australia. Our podcast will discuss technical information and case studies with some special guests from our industry. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. On today's podcast, I'm talking about a subject that obviously I'm very passionate about, but I think I'm here with someone that's more passionate about it than me, Melissa Bradley, who is an experienced water-sensitive urban design practitioner and currently working as a program manager at Water Sensitive South Australia. And I've been really privileged to meet you when we came together for a conference that you were holding. And I'm so intrigued about some of the initiatives that you've started here in South Australia and also the impact that they're having. So welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Just before we get started, could you just give us a little bit of a background? How did you get into water-sensitive urban design and what sort of career path did you have to arrive here? Sure. So when I did civil engineering a little while ago, environmental engineering actually wasn't a course yet, (laughs) but about halfway through my degree, it came in and I, you know, I didn't make the choice to switch, but I kind of always knew that it was probably where my heart was lying. So it was early in my career when I worked in areas where water was scarce in New South Wales and just that opportunity to use alternative water and how you can integrate it back into the environment was always present in a lot of the work I did and and I've been in an urban space for most of my career and you just can't work in civil engineering without having water having to understand how stormwater works and how you if you manage it better you can get so many different outcomes than conventional design and Melissa did that come from an early age this awareness around water because I I think that there's not a lot of people that really consider it or they consider it when they see disasters happen or flooding but sure I grew up in the Riverland on Murray River mm-hmm. so as a kid I experienced the 1981 flood playing in the flood water although you're not supposed to do that kids don't do that and then also experienced drought so growing up water and understanding the importance of water was you know it was part of everyday life for people in the Riverland so it did have that impact on you. So could you just explain a little bit about the main initiatives of water-sensitive urban design and particularly here in South Australia? Sure. So at, I suppose Water Sensitive SA has been in existence for about seven years now. And when we started, there was this, I suppose, a, lot, a calling from practitioners, we need more assistance around capacity building, you know, in terms of our own skills, resources and the like. And so that, that gap had existed for a while and everyone was looking to other states. And we thought, no, we want something for our state and a lot of our focus is around training but also creating tools and guidelines to help practitioners you know in their design projects construction and maintenance and and even project planning mm. so you know we're trying to take it from your concept to the long life maintenance try how do we support people through that journey with their water sensitive urban design and what do you think are some of the major challenges that you support these practitioners with I suppose the biggest pushback we get is probably maintenance and maintenance costs, lack of maintenance budgets and the fear of the asset not performing as well as a conventional solution. 
Right. Could you give me an example of what that looks like? Okay. So for a rain garden, for mm-hmm. instance, that might be, oh, the, you know, the vegetation won't last. It'll get clogged up. I don't want to build one. For a permeable paver, I'll have to rip the whole thing up and start again. And so it's possibly the fear of the unknown rather than the reality. Mm-hmm. So I think once the practitioners who are building these things and build them as business as usual, understand the whole of life cycle of these assets that's not even on their radar. It's not an issue because mm. they, they know it's probably the more of a fear of the unknown for the uninitiated. We've seen so many examples here of, of all of the things that you've just described. Mm. Is it not enough that people can see that it's working? I think definitely proof of concept helps and that we try to provide that peer-to-peer learning so people can see it, they can go out, they can almost touch it. But there's, I guess there's nothing like having an example in your own municipality or in, in your own suite of developments that you can point to your organisation and say, see, it worked there. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah, having a successful project in your own municipality or within your own development suite helps or development projects. Melissa, what are some things that might surprise our listeners about water in South Australia that people may not know about? Okay, well, what they might not know is that the total consumption of potable water in Adelaide is equivalent to approximately all of the stormwater runoff from the city. So if we could capture all the stormwater, treat it and reuse it, we wouldn't be using potable water for domestic and commercial use. That's possibly not well known. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that prior to climate change, and I probably need to see some new data on rainfall patterns, but a lot of our rainfall events historically have been four to five millimetres per hour or less. So that's the type of event that could readily be absorbed by a permeable paving product and just be taken into the local soils without generating any runoff. Mm-hmm. And so that makes up the vast majority of the events. I suppose in the future we might have a few more intensive events, but at the moment on the data that we have, the majority of, of events would be taken up by the soils and not even generate any runoff. Wow. What's your most frustrating aspect of design mistake that people make with regards to water? Sure. I think car parks are a no-brainer for water-sensitive urban design because they're such a large space. There's very few obstructions underneath the surface because there's plenty of room to put your underground surfaces. So I just, I suppose it completely baffles me when I see a car park that doesn't have the water draining towards a landscaped area running over permeable paved areas, perhaps in the car parking bays only, and running into some sort of garden bed. And instead, we still are seeing car parks where the water drains away from the garden bed into a drain and out to the street. And it just baffles me that we're in 2021, that's still happening. And it's amazing. I constantly mention it, but in Canada, you cannot build a car park unless it's Mm. permeably paved. And they've become so sophisticated in their filtration that they're actually being able to do that and then reuse that water for drinking water. I mean, fantastic. Mm. I think where we're at is that we uh, have our head in the sand over the future impacts on the stormwater network and this great big stormwater network augmentation build that's going to hit us in about 20 years time and we're struggling to fund 
all the flood needs of our city as it is at the moment and we're just ignoring this cumulative impact of the change in our imperviousness of our city and we are going to get hit with this massive bill in 20 years time and the legacy of our current practitioners should be to minimise that impact by creating impervious surfaces wherever we can. So when you talk about that situation that you see coming, just talk me through a little bit about what is that looking like? Okay, so we've had a few practitioners do some calculations and they have had a look at the current level of imperviousness of some urban catchments and then the predicted development and they're indicating that we might need to double the capacity of our stormwater infrastructure in some areas and we might think, okay, well, that's just putting a pipe in but with underground areas in urban spaces being such a contested space, the cost of putting them in is only growing because when you excavate, you come up with and you find all these other things that you didn't expect to see. And now you've got NBN as well as other uh, utilities. And it's not as easy to just put in another pipe anymore. Mm. Um, And we really just, we have to really rethink that attitude of, okay, we'll just make a big pipe later. And because you're sort of talking here just about just population growth and... Yeah, yeah. and also we have a policy that 85% of all new development will come from urban infill in the future. That's a deliberate government policy to stop urban sprawl and protect our farming areas and the biodiversity in the sort of surrounding Mount Lofty Ranges, which is absolutely an important initiative. It's just how we deliver urban infill that is the challenge. And if we switch all of our hard surfaces to a permeable solution, Solution, you know, we're probably cutting out about 20% of the runoff at a minimum from any future development. Now, if you could delay 20% of your costs, I mean, isn't that a smart thing to do? Any future impacts by 20%? It's just, to me, it's a no-brainer. So could you talk to me about some other initiatives that Water Sensitive South pioneered? Okay, so one of the things we've tried to tackle is this urban infill issue. So we've developed with a company called Organica Engineering an insight water tool. It's like a self-assessment tool for urban infill and it assesses your design against four criteria. One of them is runoff volume management, one of them is peak flow management, another one is water quality and water use efficiency. And it's a simple tool that you can do to self-assess the performance of your site. But we know when people choose a permeable paving option, it ticks many of those those performance criteria outcomes. So, you know, when people invest in a permeable paving solution, they're contributing to multiple objectives rather than just one objective like the traditional detention solution, which, yes, it stops peak flow from exceeding the requirements, but it doesn't add any value to volume management and water quality. And we know that permeable paving does. So, again, encouraging people to meet the overall objectives of their small urban infill by considering permeable paving as an option can help them have an attractive solution but also reintegrate water back into the environment, help their landscape areas perform and just tick multiple outcomes. What do you think just in terms of a public message is the biggest misconception around water-sensitive urban design? I think that it will cost more. Yep. Yeah, I think that that is the biggest fear. Oh, okay, it'll cost me more. I don't want to have these upfront costs. And in some cases it might, but in some cases it's proven to cost less if you look at your whole of network. And so, again, I feel like we're looking for these sort of short-term solutions. We're not being holistic about how we design our cities and it's only going to come back to bite us later. So and what change do you, is needed. What do you think people consider good urban design with regards to water? I think people are looking for an asset 
that does have minimal maintenance requirements. And I do feel like placing permeable paving on a private allotment, minimal traffic, low risk of becoming clogged. To me, the longevity of that asset in that context is just, it should be long life lived. Mm-hmm. So the concerns about any maintenance issues should really just be completely almost not on the balance sheet. Yes. Like it's, it's that insignificant. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we're obviously talking a lot here today and, and you work with designers, but what can people do on a very basic level when they're thinking about trying to make our water be used more efficiently? Look, I think I've tried for years to link the story between water-sensitive urban design and water quality and with mixed success, you know, had resonates with, you know, a range of different people. But the understanding that by putting water-sensitive urban design in your development or in your streetscape can actually add value back to your landscape and Mm -hmm. your urban greening and mitigate urban heat, particularly for Adelaide because of our climate, that's really where people actually started to stop and listen. And I feel like once we were able to demonstrate that connection, it actually changed the whole conversation around water-sensitive urban design. Right. And what do you think the biggest misconception is about water sensitivity? I think I spoke before about maintenance being Mm. a barrier, but it's also we as a sort of general community are possibly losing a bit of connection with nature because we don't see about it as much around Mm. and so we're becoming a bit desensitized to that but I think that will have ramifications for mental health and and physical health in the future and so I really think just challenging the notion that just because something is a clean line without any messy pebbles dropping on it and that that's a good thing Mm. and I think you know understanding that if you want a healthy green environment, you have to make changes. And whether that's an infiltration system, a rain garden, permeable paving, they're all part of this transition to a, a new style of a city mm. that we need to get to. Yes, and I couldn't agree with you more. I think what you've said about desensitising, just the fact that sometimes we see floods, sometimes we see droughts. There's one time we've got water restrictions, other times we don't. I don't know whether anyone actually understands yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, but I feel like we can't just say, well, that's really great. I love water-sensitive urban design, but you just do it over there. Mm. Like I think it's incumbent on all of us to integrate it at every possible opportunity because we are running out of public open space to manage our stormwater, and particularly in some of the suburban suburbs that don't have the wide open spaces, the greenfield sites, they literally don't have room to have a park, have all these recreational opportunities and manage stormwater. So if if we don't distribute it, our solutions up catchment in amongst the suburbs, we're just creating a future hazard and lack of amenity in our parks later on. And as we become more dense, our parks, as we knew through COVID, parks became this amazing space that everyone wanted to have a piece of and they became quite congested Mm. well you know if you're doing that and you're also having to provide a stormwater function in that park and it's taking away from recreational opportunities then that's a really lost opportunity for the community so you know the more we can distribute our our stormwater solutions throughout the catchment the better so if i was to ask you and you've mentioned rain gardens and permeable pavers if i was to say melissa give me your utopia of what urban design would look like what elements would be a part of that it's actually quite funny i've got this slide that i use in presentations when i'm doing water sense of urban design 
design your home and backyard courses, mostly for communities, but also for planners and engineers, is that there's this great drawing by the city of Salisbury and I can share it with you. Okay. And it's got this house and it's surrounded by green. It's got an underground rainwater tank and an above ground rainwater tank. It's got all of its water runs off the driveway into the garden. Any excess rainwater from overflow from the rainwater tanks runs to a rain garden that runs into it on the property and then to the street to a rain garden. And, you know, paved surfaces are permeable paved. And like I, I refer to it as utopia when I speak, mm. but, you know, it doesn't need to be. Like it should be um, business as usual. Okay. And we've talked a little bit, but I just wondered whether I could ask you directly. I mean, how do permeable pavers, how do they help? Okay, so really, I mentioned before, we've got lots of small storms in Adelaide. Mm. To be able to capture those small storms and have that water seep into the local soils, keep that moisture where it falls, and then not have the runoff to the stormwater system. But from a personal level, you know, the people who live there, that's helping sustain their little green patch. And a lot of people don't have a lot of green. So here's their opportunity to link, you know, their hard paved surfaces with their little patch of green and have like a more sustainable outcome that doesn't need as much watering, etc. And I know that when push comes to shove, sometimes people do turn the tap off when their water bills may reach a certain level over summer. So here's a way to create a more sustainable garden. And people are starting to appreciate their gardens more and more. So hopefully it gives them an opportunity to have a more sustainable solution in their own backyard. And then just I'd love to hear your thoughts, obviously, of the importance of rain gardens. But could you just describe for some people that may not know what they are and then just the impact that has? Okay, so rain gardens are landscape gardens that actually have a function where they treat stormwater as it passes through the rain garden. It has a special filter media that removes the phosphorus, but also the plants in that um, rain garden remove nitrogen, and that prevents those nutrients from then running into local creek and then ultimately to the coastal environments and protects the coastal environments from what essentially is pollution, excess nutrients is pollution. So, yeah, it's just sort of quite compact. So in a greenfield development, you'd build a wetland because you've got space and it provides a lot of amenity. But again, in the inner suburbs and in some streetscapes, you can't fit, obviously, that some of those solutions. And so it's a very compact solution to treat stormwater. Mm. And where, where would you ideally like to see rain gardens? Streetscapes. I mean, they, they can go in parks as well. Okay. And they like large biofilters can fit into a parkscape. But I think they're just a really neat solution, catching the water where it falls straight off the road into your rain garden. And it, it suits like a small catchment contributing to it. So it, it sort of seems like a you know a local streetscape mm. is a lo- logical spot pace, but also larger verge or streets where there's a larger road carriageway and you've got centre medians, another perfect spot, direct the water to the centre median and you've got this constant supply of water to keep it green. And also a canopy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, canopy is just another whole benefit that we haven't really even sort of touched on. No, and and I mean, it's very stark in some areas here. Yeah, certainly some suburbs are crying out for mm. more canopy. And if we want to have a walkable city, it's more active community, it won't happen if we don't have canopy covered streetscapes. For I guess students and young designers and and engineers and graduates, what is your advice to them? How could they help you? Okay, so I think just be bold and like I don't think you have to apologize for asking for these kind of outcomes water sensitive urban design is it's a design principle it should be part of any development and our certainly our planning design codes 
um, strongly encourages it. And so really that should be an expectation. It should not be a, a value add add-on. It should be just part of basic design principles. And I, and I think if your client doesn't understand and, and says, oh, no, that's not for me, actually taking the time to look at some of the resources on the Water Sensitive SA website, we've got the evidence base there for it, we've got the benefits, we've got research, we've got case studies. So if you're having trouble convincing your client that it's the way to go, there's plenty of resources around to draw on to say, actually, you know, maybe it's worth a shot. That's excellent. So, Melissa, as a homeowner, what's something that I could do in my own home to help with water-sensitive urban design? Actually, if you use our Insight Water Tool, and I've run so many different infill housing scenarios through it, just single dwellings through to townhouses and apartments, stormwater falls on your roof Mm -hmm. or it falls on hard surfaces on the ground and that's where you get the runoff and obviously gardens, most of it will soak in. So as long as you're capturing the majority of the water from your roof and you plummet back for internal use, either through your toilet flushing, hot water service or a laundry cold tap, that really takes care of everything that hits your roof for the majority. You'll get some, your tank will be full occasionally and occasionally it will overflow to the street, but a lot of the water will be taken up by the tank. And then for your hard surfaces, if as long as you had your driveway and your paths made from some sort of permeable or porous material, Really, job's done. Mm. It's that easy. Yeah. Now, Melissa, if I was to ask you, are there any projects that we should be looking out for and keeping an eye on that are coming up? Okay. Been working with a few of our partner councils on a few land divisions that are that are coming up, and I guess without sort of naming them all, what I'd like to say is that what I'm seeing is certainly a lot of land division development applications are just, I'm starting to see permeable paving specs on a lot of urban infield developments, which is fantastic. Mm. Like, so I think as we walk around the suburbs over the next sort of one to three years, we're actually going to see a transformation away from kind of, you know, your standard concrete driveways, and we're going to see more and more permeable surfaces out there, which is just so refreshing to see that. And so in industry are reading the planning design code they're seeing that it's calling for more infiltration more permeable paving and they're responding so i think that's great and is there one council or city that has really taken the lead in this in your eyes okay or is that now you're asking me to pick a favorite child (laughs) so we've got we've got lots of partners and a lot of them are doing some really great things probably some standouts city of mitcham seem to be putting permeable pavements in a lot of their road pavements as well as their footpaths and i've noticed city of charles sturt are also moving that way and also the city of west torrens but you know the likes of city of burnside they were doing it 20 years ago Mm. so you know we've got some really early adopters amongst our partners and then some councils that have come on more in recent years but it is becoming business as usual for them which is fantastic and do you have a favorite project oh look it's funny i was thinking about that before i came there's one in the city of adelaide called treasury lane and it's been there since about 2012 it's a community housing project so probably three or four stories with a big green grassed um, area in the middle of the houses and then a tree-lined street of plane trees and, and adjacent all of those plane trees are parking bays that are made of permeable paving. And those trees, so we're nearly like you know, we're nine years on, mm-hmm. those plane trees are looking beautiful and healthy. And to me, I just think, well, that's the outcome you want. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's just proof that you know, having permeable paving actually is adding value to the streetscape. And that's what success looks mm-hmm. like. Do you have a favourite paver? Paver, oh gosh. Look, it's funny. I see what I think the industry is responding to, and they have, 
you know, they've really, industry's really grabbed hold of that, the eco trihex, because whether it's the aesthetic or whether it's just the fact that it takes a lot of water. Mm-hmm. So I suppose from, that's probably what I see out there. But equally, you know, Best Bricks, I see a lot of that in the footpaths. They're designed with the little more square paper with the notch out of it. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes it's even context. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if you're doing a road project versus a footpath project, I feel like industry is starting to try different things. And I actually would like to see, from a practitioner's point of view, some more different styles and just to sort of mix it up a bit and mix the aesthetic up. Mm. I think that would be really interesting to see the manufacturing industry play with that a bit and maybe Mm. respond to the fact that some people go, that looks not for me. I want to go with Mm. this sort of more standard conventional look. Well, maybe some product development with the industry who are saying, look, I want it to look a certain way and maybe... There could be a permeable paper that sort of responds to that aesthetic. That's mm. a good challenge for our industry. Mm. I was going to ask you through water sensitivity, has there been anything that's surprised you in a good way about pavers that you didn't know before you started? Look, I'm amazed their capacity to take water. Actually, it's so funny. I did the, I did your course when you came to Adelaide, um, based at the City of Adelaide recently, and I was amazed. I, I suppose it depends on what your subgrade is, mm. but depending on the design, I was amazed at how much water a permeable pave system can take. And in doing the research and some of the research that we've got on our website, I was actually surprised to see some are designed to take quite the design storms. You know, you'd think, oh, the one in five years design storm, one in 10, but there is proof that it can take, you know, one in 20s and plus, and it's just how you configure it under the ground. And so we shouldn't be saying, oh, they don't, they aren't a solution for those sort of design events or design storms because they could be. Mm, Excellent. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for being with us today and I really applaud you for the work that you're doing. It's purposeful, Mm -hmm. it's impactful and I think it's something that we need to think more about. Mm -hmm. Just before we finish, what would be the key message that you'd like to leave our listeners with today about water-sensitive urban design? Okay, so probably the main thing is that it can be done at any scale And there are so many different solutions. So this is not a thing that it's a local government's job to do on public lands, and it's not just up to the developer to do. It's something that the landholder can do, developer can do, council can do, and I think we we need to be doing it at all scales if we're really going to um, transform our cities and create the kind of cities that we all want to live in. Melissa, thank you so much. We're going to make sure that all of those links to everything you've talked about are in our show notes, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for ideas of what to talk about. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.